Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. And the author I have on the great conversation today changed my world. Let me tell you why. I have been the family historian. I was the kid asking grandpa uh, what he did as a, uh, and all his adventures around Cuba. He told me about going across the United States and his Model T. He talked about his adventures with the senoritas in Cuba uh, when he was a teenager. Uh, yeah, he he would leave his home in Athens, Georgia and get on the boat and go to Cuba. Yeah, that was my grandfather. He also was invisible because those of you who don't know it, there were people who put the grid up years ago. Yeah, they put the grid up. The ele electricity you have today, they heat your homes. He was the guy. He put that entire grid up, but he's invisible to most of you. And I, I was thinking about invisible, uh, the word invisible. How many of your employees are invisible? They're the quiet ones. They're the ones doing their duty. They're the ones who aren't disengaged like 80% of us, according to Gallup. They're the ones who put in a good workday because it's the right thing to do. And, uh, and they have faith it'll pay off in the end. If not uh, for them, multi-generationally with their kids and their grandchildren. Today, I'm with a guy who's going to help us discover the invisible about us through his story of his family. Doug Melville, welcome to The Great Conversation. Thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, absolutely. First, let's just get it right out the door here. You're about to hit the bestseller list. Let's hope. Let's cross our fingers. But there's yeah. a reason. It's resonating with people. Tell me about your journey in writing this book and why you think it's resonating. Yeah, so uh, this book is really a culmination of uh, 10 years of research and uh, two years of writing, but it was put together to cover my family story from Ulysses S. Grant all the way until today and cover the eight presidents they worked for, uh, the two men in my family that became America's first two black generals, and also how we've honored them at West Point and the Air Force Academy since uncovering the story. So it's really a living, fluid story that really shares the fact that history was quote unquote, long time ago, but it's really here today. And we really can still find so much purpose in ourselves. So um, two weeks ago, when we started talking to different media outlets about coming on and so forth, you know, it was picking up okay. But then we got the opportunity when I got invited to come on The Daily Show. So when Comedy Central reached out and said, listen, The Daily Show uh, is considering booking you. And they uh, put me on at the desk for a nine minute segment. That was when something changed my life. You know, I mean, when people sometimes talk about there's one moment, but I think when you're an author, you don't really know if the world is going to love your piece of art, if it's going to be rejected, if it's going to be criticized. And I think as a first time author, you don't even know if you're a good you know, if you're a good writer, you know, you have Kirkus and other reviews, Publishers Weekly, other places reviewing the work and you just get scared, even though they say, don't look at reviews, the book's already done. But, you know, first time anything. So that was a big deal. And um, once the Daily Show hit and the reviews started coming out, 
the momentum just picked up more and more and more. PBS, The Breakfast Club, CBS News, Time Magazine, you know, people started reaching out. Um, and that led me uh, really here to the great conversation, but also led me to get uh, a note that said we are in the running for the New York Times bestseller list. So uh, we'll, we'll hope that today in five and 17 minutes, you know, they're supposed to send out the email. So, uh, you know, we'll let you know, but thanks for right. asking about it. Cause that I think will, that, that will definitely, that will definitely go into my write up here We're we're poised. We're 17 minutes away, literally about the time we'll be ending this podcast. We'll know <laughs> if Doug Melville is on the bestseller list with his book, invisible generals. Um, Doug, uh, uh, again, why is it resonating? Here's what I do know after reading your book. You, you're articulate. You yourself said, I didn't realize I had this in me, but you could bring up that story at the drop of a dime. And you brought it up many times spontaneously. That's how you best work in your, in your speaking engagements spontaneously. You're, you have the gift of story, obviously, or people wouldn't be asking you to speak. So tell me why this story is so meaningful to you. Yeah, I think, uh, I knew, number one is like you said, I know the story so well at this point, it's like no one can out, you know, story me, you know, if they needed to, but you know, history is complicated and people come from different angles, but you know, this is a story of America's first two black generals, a father and a son with the same name. And at the start of world war two, before they were generals, they were the only two black officers in the entire United States military out of 335,000 people. That's incredible. But wait, wait, go back a step, though, because we're talking 300 years of history here. Go go back a step. Ben Sr., who you call Ollie in the book, Ben Sr., rode horses. Yeah, Ben Sr. rode horses. And actually, if we go back one more generation, uh, so five, four generations back past me, yeah. Um, you have a gentleman in our family named Lewis Davis and Lewis Davis uh, was born uh, as a servant. Grew up in the house of a general by the name of uh, General Logan, who people know in America, Logan Airport in Boston, most notably Logan Circle and Square in Chicago and D.C. And General Logan uh, brought this young boy into his home, raised him as as a servant, but almost as a son or a mentor in a very, you know, um, personal way, because at that time, you, you know, these young children were at the disposal of whoever they work for. So they could have treated them bad or good or helped them or hurt them, whatever. And this General Logan really raised Lewis as, you know, a young man and got him a job babysitting Ulysses S. Grant's oldest son. And when Grant was going for his second presidential inauguration, there's a story about in the buggy was Grant Lewis Davis and Grant's son on his knee as they rode into the White House that day. And I just say to myself, it's unbelievable to think about this is the relationship that actually started it all because when General Logan uh, helped Lewis Davis secure a career, by getting a job at the Department of the Interior, expanding the post office westward, he said, how can I help your son? And he said, my son doesn't want to work in the government, although that's what they had wanted him to do. 
he wants to battle and go to West Point and gives him the signature of the congressman and the district needed to get in. And it goes all the way to the desk of President McKinley and President McKinley rejects it and says, we don't want to get in the habit of allowing blacks into West Point. So Ben Sr., knowing that he can't get the family hookup, runs away in a one-way train ticket to Wyoming and joins, at the time, the Buffalo Soldiers, which were pushing the Native Americans west. When he's in the Buffalo Soldiers, he meets Charles Young, the only other black graduate of West Point, and Charles Young becomes his mentor and says, you need to have a specialty, and this is where Ben Sr. went into equestrian and horse riding, and you need to realize you can graduate and get through West Point, but you'd have to have a son and raise him from the time he was born and train him almost like a LeBron does with Bronny or Shador and, and Deion Sanders from the time they're born to be a military general. And then you could get them into West Point. And the craziest part about this too, to me, Ron, is that Ben Davis Sr. does it. He doesn't just say, okay, he becomes a great equestrian, so much so that President McKinley hears about it and in 1901 elevates him to officer status and writes a note that he saved him two years of his life by not having him go to West Point. And then Ben Sr. gets a wife, has three kids, and his wife dies in childbirth. And then he becomes a single dad, trying to make his son feel good, brings him flying one day in a barnstorming for $5, which was one week's pay. And his son, Ben Jr., comes down and goes, Daddy, I want to be a pilot. And instead of him saying, I'm a single dad, you know the struggle we're going through, he said, I can help you get that dream a reality, but you have to listen to me. Even the United States of America cannot turn down a West Point grad that graduated in the top third of their class. So if you want to be a pilot, the private sector segregated. This is the only way. And he then commits his life to ensuring his son's dream, and they become the first two black generals in American history. I love that one story, too, when Ben Jr. Uh, has to pass, pass the entry exam. And he fails the first time. Mm-hmm. It's like all this preparation. And he he fails because he hadn't gone through two segments. Or he would have, of course, because he could digest information. He could he could um he could uh take a test on it. Um, but that wasn't a subject area he had done. Was it uh history? What was it? I forget what what it was that he missed. But he ended up failing those two things, but yeah, the, yeah. the grit, the grit, and the persistence of the guy, he goes back and he just d- doubles down, and he yeah, goes he, back a year later, passes, and gets in. That's exactly right. He was not great at mathematics. It was mathematics, and, and uh, he went for one year after right. failing the entry test, yeah. and um, and his dad drops him off at the train, and this is where the story became so personal to me. It was a dad. In Chicago, dropping his son on the train, new, go to school. You know, it happens all over America millions of times. And his son gets to school, pulled in the commandant's office under the sign that says duty, honor, and country, told 
that he needs to wait for his room assignment. And then when he gets it, it's a single room at the end of the hallway that was a converted closet. <laughs> Goes to bed that night scared, thinking about like first night of college. Wakes up the next day, hears the pitter-patter of feet, runs down to a meeting in the sinks because he's late, op- goes to open the door, the door's locked. He wasn't invited at all. He thought he was missing it. And they go, we accidentally let a black cadet in. We are to silence him and treat him as if he's invisible until he drops out. And the man goes back to his room, calls his dad, and his dad goes, I trained you for this moment. There are 13 million blacks on the other side. I need you to do two things. Write the date on the wall and that you're going to graduate. And number two, no matter what anybody does, you have to you have to ignore it and get through this. Yeah. Very Jackie Robinson kind of moment. Him yeah. And yeah. Tricky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all. That's right. That's right. That's right. No, it was the only way to survive. And and it's so funny. There's all sorts of examples of people in history who have taken that approach. And and I got to tell you, I here's what I walked away with. That approach still holds true especially with people of color, but it it still holds true for all of us, doesn't it? Putting that date on the wall and saying and keeping the eye on the prize, even if everything around you is conspiring against you, and do it with a degree of decorum and integrity mm. uh, and respect for the process. And you say you said something, in the book that was incredible. I, f- I forget if it was a quote from your grandfather or your great-grandfather, use the system to diffuse the system. That is, if you're working working within a company today and it's a screwed up company, just like people are screwed up, use the system to diffuse the system. Tell me about that. Tell me about that yeah. DNA that's in your tribe there, Doug. Yeah, and you know, that, that saying was something that was passed down in our family and that oh. was kind of the mantra or motto we don't really have a shield you know or or a crest but if we did in our imagination it would say you have to use the system to diffuse the system and and basically this was just the thinking that there are many ways to make change disrupt educate inform inspire some do it through protesting some do it through art our family's motto was do it through the system through performance and by using the system first you start by getting in it you can't change anything from outside the second thing is you have to get a voice once you get a voice that turns into a vote once you get a vote that can turn into consensus and that can turn into policy there you go so this was a long way because the second part of the saying that they would always say was um, the impossible takes time, but in time you can accomplish the impossible, which was the second half of it. Because when you use the system to diffuse it, this may take a while, you know, and that was the thing, Ron, it, it was, you, you could do it, but it's going to take some time. So you also have to know that the mission continues even past your time. And that's why I felt so committed to bring this to life because I feel like I'm still executing their idea of what needed to be done. So 
how do you teach kids? How do you teach young adults? How do you teach adults that the long game is a great game? It's a pure game. You may not see it in this lifetime, Martin Luther King. You may not see it in your lifetime, but you will see it. How how do you how do you think people create the long game? How do you think that is infused in multi-generational family like yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's very personal because I don't think my brother and sister, you know, I have cousins. I mean, you know, just because you're in the same family doesn't mean everybody is, you know, monolithic and thinking. I'm sure you have a few rogue family members. I'll just throw that out there. I don't know. But um, I think the way they looked at negativity and uh, people that were misguided or people that may have tried to oppress or put them down was simply the fact that some people standing next to you have different opportunities than you have. And those opportunities were earned by people that came before them. And if we don't have opportunities because of our skin color or because of whatever the case may be, women for their gender, what have you, then we have a heavier burden to carry that we are responsible for. So our next generation can live in the best light, like the kids from today's generation. So they actually never trained me or talked to me about the excuse. They just said, you have to look at this in a different way. That way is going to take time and go through it. And if it doesn't finish, pass it to the next one. Now I don't have any kids. So Ron, I got to find nephews and cousins. I'm looking around case I don't have a baby and say, you know, who's picking this up? Well, it's so, so funny. I love that story too. of uh, uh, Ben has died, Ben Mm -hmm. Jr. And uh, it's years later. And um, mom is going to hand off everything, all the memories. Yes. This is collected to the museum and you're of course trying to construct a, a legacy yourself and you're trying to figure out what that exchange of value looks like but then and then west point decides to build a new building they don't build very many new buildings at west point no very and rare. they're going and they're going to honor that with the name of somebody somebody who's graduated from west point and of course you're grandfather is under consideration mm-hmm. um and we'll just cut this story short but he ends up getting the name but i love that one that one story in the book where um i think one of the laborers or the architects walks mm-hmm. over and shows you something he's carved on the stone yeah he wa- tell us yeah. about that So um, what was so interesting about this was uh, there was three names up for consideration. And this is how um, this is where the research turned on. This is where, you know, there was a revolution that led to an evolution. But starting back to where we began, I set a Google alert after leaving the Red Tails movie. I did three years of research. I made a commitment that the next time the Google alert went off, I was going to share the story of whomever it went off for. And it just so happened it was West Point considering this barracks. And like you said, there hasn't been a new barracks there in, you know, 30, 40 years. 
And the way they do the naming at West Point, it's the height and the location within campus and the type of building are dictated by the gravitas of the honor. So the highest building in the campus in the dead middle of the campus, because they moved a big mountain that was in the middle, a rock, and the barracks are the highest. So this was the triple highest uh, honor in the campus. So there's three names to be selected. And I share with the men and the women at the table that day, you know, the story that I shared about these two men and the family. I shared with them that uh, their, that his name was not in the graduation directory online. When I went up there, I shared that his last meeting here in 1986 uh, was to offer him a photo in the in the in the campus that he didn't want because it said first African-American general in the Air Force. And he just wanted to say general. And they didn't want to do that. So they separated and just de facto both just went their own way. And there was no conversation with West Point. So when I heard that his name was up for one of these barracks, I just couldn't lose this opportunity. And it was one of the workers who brought us down to see there was a few of us Army Corps of Engineers when they were showing the building. And he walked me over and goes, I read the story of this man and put a cornerstone over here that said something to the effect is one day the cornerstone will be the foundation of what we build in the future and the guy starts crying and I invite him and all the workers back to the ribbon cutting ceremony. And West Point goes, Doug, you can't invite everybody who laid granite in this building for five years. And they all showed up. Oh, wow. And I said, but they're the ones that were invisible. Absolutely. Built this building and brought it to life. And they were the Ben's. And I wanted them to be there with me. And that was something that was really important and special when we cut that ribbon in 2017. Yeah, he he told you it came from the Bible, Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the whole story of racism in our country, what he had to endure going through years of silence, silent treatment throughout his term, can't even imagine not even being in the directory and now he's the cornerstone it's unbelievable and i remember my dad crying and crying go doug he goes doug ben would never i get chills to, he goes he would never believe this no he would have never been able to be, no. he would have never believed it no he would have never believed it so this story like i opened up with this may be on its surface, a story, a wonderful family story, rediscovering the family legacy, uh, a quest to make your family visible because they were in some significant moments in the history of our country and had an impact and influence on the outcomes that have made us a country today. A wonderful story. But behind that story, tucked in the back, surprisingly becomes a story for all of us to rediscover what is invisible. Tell us about why you decided to include that segment in the book and maybe some of the key things you want us all to remember. Yeah, I think for me, it was a very important at the end to realize that I'm just a, I was just a regular guy with a very irregular 
story at my fingertips and what were the things that I did to start? Because sometimes this looks daunting when I, even when I say 10 years, when someone first asked me how many, how long did I work at 10 years? I'm sitting here going 10 years, who would do that? But the thing is, it started slow, one foot in front of the other. And you know, it, and in the back of the book, it's how to be a visible general where I walk through the steps people can take. The first step is set a Google alert for any prominent family members of note. Know your family. You know, you don't have to make a tree, but if there's a few names or a few uh, details from someone that you think would help, uh, I think that's super important. Well, uh, real, next real quick, real quick on that, just to pause for a second, apologize, but that's a big one because you learn someone mentored you on something called a monument tree. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So uh, someone mentored me uh, to really help understand, you know, just what uh, all about the family. I mean, we didn't know, you know, who was the brothers, who are the sisters, who are the cousins, you know. And when you start writing family stories, there's all kinds of different people. You can't include everyone um, because it's hard, you know, and the hard thing about this book was a 150 year time period. So that was another challenge that, you know, how do you write a 150 year story and make it sound interesting and like, you know, just a small, a small book. But once I learned who the family was, I had a lot of conversations with my dad. And I think these are the living testaments and storytellers. Like you said, you're the family historian, but getting people to talk that are from the silent generation that may be covering up trauma or just want to protect you it's not easy i mean people just don't want to talk about it so you know him not my mother didn't know the story they've been married over 50 years and then when he tells me the story i get so infatuated with it that i just kind of make a de facto way on how to research and when West Point contacted us and named the barracks, then they opened up their archives to us. Every test, every paper that he did, his application, all in pencil, still perfect. Like, just like it's done. I'm looking at this going, this is 90 years old. Amazing. And then they called the Air Force Academy. And they said, well, the Air Force Academy was really, you know, founded by a group of men and the person responsible for allowing women into the Air Force Academy was Ben Davis Jr. when he proposed women should have equal opportunities. So there needs to be something for him there. And then they named the airfield after him, which is the the, the airport in the center of campus. Mm-hmm. And then, then after that, then we get the Air Force's historian to give us all the information about what planes, what sorties, when it happened, where it happened. So you got to get it going. But in this case, there was it was almost like the gerrymandering of history where all the information was there. It's just one die here, one piece here, one move here. I want to end with something. Um, so so Doug, you you've been an entrepreneur, you've started several companies, and then you went into corporate America um, to do something that you had to learn what it was at first called. DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. I didn't know it was a real job. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, some would argue today. Don't get me started. Some would argue today. They don't know if it's a real 
real job now, but I believe it's a real job. I I believe in it more than ever, but at the time I was not familiar. Well, you know, forget about programmatically DEI, but those three words are very powerful words, right? And words Mm -hmm. are real things. And and but but it's interesting because it'd be fun to think about how you approach DEI programmatically when your family when your family i love this quote in the book doug we're not black we're not african-american doug we're americans tell Mm -hmm. me about that that's now that in itself is a family legacy yeah and um this this is something that um when ben jr wrote his book uh he wouldn't publish it if it if it wasn't titled American. So he was very adamant to me, particularly my dad a little bit, but me really, that I should go through life only as American and I should never label myself because he fought for integration and for us to be all called Americans. Yeah, we we weren't made equal. We were born equal. That's right. That's right. I like this energy. And this is actually how he would speak about it. He was very passionate about it. Right. And he would tell me that in later in life, people would argue with him. You know, and and he actually shared the story about Jesse Jackson coming up with the term African-American and how he called different black leaders to buy in and how he didn't really want to buy in. Because he just thought we should all be Americans. But I bring this up because. I end the book talking about at the end of their life when the Smithsonian wanted to collect the items to live forever in the, in the confines and rooftops underneath the Air and Space Museum. So this was a huge get for the museum and huge for Ben and his wife. And as they come to collect the items, Benjamin Davis Jr.'s wife for over 60 years is crossing out the word African in front of American as items are taken out of the home. Yeah. And she ended up writing a note, which I briefly bring up that said in the eyes of history, they feel they've earned the right to be known as Americans. And when you put it this way, that fought all the way since Ulysses S grant for equality and earned it, that the least the country could do is identify them only as Americans. And I always wonder what they would think about now, you know, when we've really put people in different boxes, you can always argue, is it better or worse? If there was no boxes, would it be more beneficial, less beneficial? You can go down the sociological timeline, but the importance to me here is the strength of going through all those things where your country is against you. And you still want to go above and beyond to ensure that you are looked at as American. And for him to die on the 4th of July. That's amazing. Just. Yeah. Well, Doug. I'd say to my community. You are history in the making. And what you leave behind will be based on 
the performance of your actions tied to your integrity and character. This book is not only a story of that narrative and how it works, but also gives lessons on how it can work for you. Doug, mm -hmm. this has been a great conversation and I can't wait to hear from you when you get on that New York Times bestseller list. I, and I, you will be the first call. How about we make a deal? I make the list. You're my first. You're the last interview before it and the first one after it. <laughs>